Please join me in opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Let's again take a moment and ask the Lord for His grace, blessing, and guidance. Father, thank You that we have this privilege to study Your Word, to sing Your praise, to pray to You, to seek Your face and to know that in our seeking, we will find, we will find you to be true, holy, righteous, and just, kind, merciful, and loving. Help us that we would grow and understand. Help us to worship you in the study of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How much do you remember of your elementary school days? I can remember the exploding of the Challenger in 1986. I remember the ball going through Buckner's legs, the Patriots getting buried by the Bears, even though they were supposed to bury the Bears, it didn't work out. Uh, The Celtics with Larry Bird winning the NBA championship. I can remember a couple of scuffles that I was involved in in my elementary school. Once during a dodgeball game, a few of the kids decided to gang up on me. I ended up on the ground, and one of my classmates was kicking me in the side, and I popped up and popped him in the face. (laughs) To the principal's office, I went to see Mr. Searles. My father was called in, and we had a little chat I can vividly remember Mr. Searles, and he had a way about him when he was making emphasis. He would roll up in the front of his, the balls of his feet, and he used the horns at me, and he kept doing this over and over. Um, the ultimate message that he wanted to communicate to me was, Robert, you need to turn over a new leaf. To that I said, yes, sir, departed with my father. On my way home, he had a few things to say to me, including, son, I've done my time at school, and I don't want to go back. (laughs) Unfortunately, not too long later, I can remember this vividly, the end of the day had come. We were lining up at the door of our classroom. I happened to be at the front of the line in my fifth grade class, and Sixth grade boy across the hall, his name was Gustav, I'll leave the rest of it off for the name's sake, Uh, Gustav uh, told me he was going to beat me up. And I said, okay. The classes were dismissed. We walked to the edge of the property and it was on. He started on me and he took a few poundings to the side of the head and then the crosswalk guide came over and broke it up. Guess where I ended up? guess who else got to go? So there was Mr. Searles, and there was my dad in Mr. Searles' office. I'll illustrate again so you can get this vividly in your head. It can be stuck in in torment your nightmares as well. (laughs) Robert, you need to turn over a new leaf. And of course, um, I, I was not a particularly terrible child. I was a sinner like everyone else, and I was an unredeemed child. The instruction is good and well-intended. It's not a bad instruction, but he did not supply for me the ability to turn over a new leaf. Where would that power come from? That is the discussion that we have before us this morning as we continue our study of the book of Romans. Ladies and gentlemen, a desire for transformation is not enough. A call for transformation is not enough. We need the work of God to effect eternal transformation. And this is exactly what God accomplishes. And He uses the Gospel of Jesus Christ as a necessary agent. 
We are in Romans chapter 1. Please look with me again at verses 1 through 7. Before we read, I haven't given you this data, it's just information. Paul follows the customary letter writing pattern of his day. It would be the writer introducing himself, giving a few little clues about what he's going to write about in his introduction to himself, and then a leading into the recipient, telling who he's writing to, followed by some well wishes. Well, Paul follows that very well. He introduces himself. He tells who he's talking to. And instead of giving a well, wish, a well wishes like, hey, have a great day or be warmed and filled, he actually supplies for them a greeting of grace and uh, peace or grace and mercy that he is calling forth from God. So that's the, just a little bit of information about letter writing. He's following a first century letter writing pattern, and he uses it to introduce us to what God is going to communicate with us about in this letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To, those, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just letting God's Word do what God's Word alone can do and God's Spirit alone can do. If you just meditate on how God conveys this introduction to us, your soul will be fed, your spirit will be enlivened. God is speaking. As part of Paul's introduction of himself, he spoke of God's call on his life as one set apart for the gospel of God. We talked about that last week. He's a distinctive messenger. This description of himself would give an introduction to what he would be writing about and desiring to teach them face to face. We'll recognize that later in this epistle. This morning, we want to consider the significance of this distinctive message. Not the distinctive messenger that was last week. This morning, this distinctive message. And we'll discuss it under three main headings. First of all, the gospel reveals... God's eternal purposes. Secondly, the gospel is based upon God's eternal Son. And thirdly, the gospel produces eternal transformation. These are our three headings as we see from this text. We will focus on the first and the third of them for next week. We'll have moved from a distinctive messenger to this week a distinctive message to next week a distinctive Messiah. So we'll hold most of our comments about that second heading until next week, but we will touch on it for a moment or two. Here we are at our first concept. The gospel reveals God's eternal purposes. Take a look again at verse 2. Verse 1 ends, set apart for the gospel of God, which, so he's talking about the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so God is letting us know that the gospel has been an ongoing revelation from God to his people and to the world. God has been unveiling his plan from the beginning, but he is not figuring it out as he goes along. He was not surprised by the sin of Adam and Eve, and he is not surprised 
by my sin. God determined long before the creation of the world that He would redeem sinners through the sacrifice of His glorious Holy Son. With that in mind, I want for us to turn to the book of Ephesians, please. Ephesians chapter 3. We're talking about the reality that God has, from the beginning, purposed to save a people for Himself. This is an eternal plan, not one that was hatched after things went poorly. Those that think that God is a reactionary or learns things do not know the God of the Bible. There is a whole sect of people that believe in what's called open theism. That God learns, figures things out, and adapts. God learns nothing. He is. In Ephesians chapter 3, please look at verses 7 and following. Paul has just told them of the entrustment of the gospel, the dispensation, the stewardship of the gospel that's been placed upon him. And now he continues that in verse 7 and says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according, please listen, this was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. God lets us know that He intended from the beginning to save a people through the Lord Jesus. Back in chapter 1 of Ephesians in verse 4, the Bible says this, even as He chose you in Him, in Jesus, when before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us, etc., etc. We have this call, God says, I've done this. This is my eternal purpose. This is not something that came as a result of things gone sour. Paul says it in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. He says this, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and, what does it say? Grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. God's purposes in the Lord Jesus, God's purposes in the Gospel are eternal. It did not come into being as a result of God losing control of His creation. This was God's plan. This plan of redemption has been being unveiled throughout the history of mankind and throughout the pages of Scripture. Thomas Schreiner rightly writes, Paul never conceives of his gospel as antithetical to or contradictory of the Old Testament. Instead, the gospel revealed in the New Testament is picking up on the threads God has been leaving all along that he was going to save a people, a people, a people like us. Not saving us because we were mighty, not saving us because we were smart or beautiful, or noble, but instead because of His own good purposes. It was not because you were great. It was not because you were the mightiest of all nations that I chose you. Remember God speaking to Israel? You were the smallest. You want to know why He was the smallest? Because they weren't. There was no nation of Israel until God made a nation out of them through Abraham. <laughs> they, were, they were not a nation. And he made them a nation. Beautiful. God has purposes, and they're not dependent upon us. They're dependent upon him. He's doing this work. We could uh, not possibly develop this concept thoroughly here. It's a study of its own. But right from the fall of man, God has been revealing his intention to rescue or redeem man. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the Bible says, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you 
and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, he'll crush your head, you will bruise or crush his heel. In speaking to Abraham, God says this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now it's through the seed of Abraham. Abraham's not the blessing. The people aren't the blessing. None of the people are the blessing until the ultimate person came forth. The true and final seed, the one that would demonstrate faithfulness and truth, and final and perfect redemption, the Lord Jesus himself. In the covering of Adam and Eve's nakedness after their sin, God demonstrated his willingness to deal with man's sin. This matter comes into sharper focus as the law of God is unveiled. When God provides a sacrificial system that was designed to enable fellowship and provide forgiveness of sins. The sacrifices, feasts, and memorials of those Old Testament sacrificial system, of that Old Testament sacrificial system, would all be pointing forward to a day, a day of final and satisfying sacrifice. The prophet spoke of a day when God's people would dwell safely and in utter peace. We read about it to start our service in Isaiah 40. While the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood and the Levitical system was helpful, they were not final. The book of Hebrews makes good clarifying statements about this. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. This is a familiar passage to many of us. If it's not familiar, it's one worthy of your ponderance. In Hebrews 10.4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away, I would add fully, sins. Remember, those uh, sacrifices would atone for, cover, cover sin. Then they had to do it again. Cover, and again, cover, and again, cover. Until that final sacrifice came in the person of the Lord Jesus, where the Old Testament law was unable to provide eternal redemption, God, through His Son, brought about complete eternal salvation. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Again, I refer you to Hebrews where he said, the Bible says, and by that will, the will of the Lord Jesus we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily in his services, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. That means it's all set. It's done. Finished. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, listen, this is, this is, to use the word awesome here is appropriate. For a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So he talks about something that took place in the past. Jesus has done this. He's satisfied this. It's a once-for-all sacrifice. It's a finished sacrifice. It has eternal ramifications in the lives of those who are being, that's a present tense, sanctified. So the work that God is doing in the life of a believer is evidence that God has taken care of the eternal record of our debt. Because God is taking the conditional, practical, 
daily power of sin from ruling over us. These truths help us to consider seamlessly the transition to our next reality about God's distinctive message, which is the Gospel. We talked about the fact that the Gospel is is demonstrating God's eternal purposes, right? This is not something new. God's been revealing it from the beginning. This is uh, unveiled in time and space through the pages of Scripture and in, in human history, but God planned it before the foundation of the earth. It's an eternal purpose. Secondly, the Gospel is based upon God's eternal Son. We're, we're back in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And again, we're only going to touch on this for just a moment because this is the subject of our study and worship in the Word next Sunday. The Gospel is based upon God's eternal Son. It says in verse 3, concerning His Son. Concerning His Son. Two ideas should be understood here at this moment. And listen carefully, lest you misunderstand. Are you ready? The Son of God, not Jesus, is eternal. The Son of God, not Jesus, is eternal. The Son of God is eternal. Jesus is not eternal in that sense. He came into existence at a point in time. He is the God-man. This took place in history in fulfillment of prophetic revelation. We read about the birth of Jesus in both Matthew and Luke. The Son of God, on the other hand, the the second person of the triune Godhead, is eternal. He has existed eternally. He rightly, without hesitation, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is true about the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God incarnate in time and space. The Son of God, the second person of the eternal triune God, created everything. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, all tell us that nothing was created without the Lord Jesus Christ, without the second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh. Jesus is not eternal in His humanity, the second person of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, the second person, the Son of God, is eternal. Does that make sense? So the Gospel is concerning His Son. The second item that we need to uh, attend to here briefly is this. The Son of God, Jesus, is the subject of all of Scripture. Jesus is the subject of all of Scripture. Luke 24 speaks about this at length. And John 5 speaks about it in specific, right-to-the-point manner. It says this in John 5, 39 and 40. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. You see, this is God's eternal word. They've, they're forever settled in heaven, right? We believe this. This is what God intended for us to know. This is a means toward eternal life, but we will not gain eternal life here. The scriptures are not eternal life. They point us to Him who is. Jesus, when He was praying to His Father in John 17, said, this is eternal life, that they may know You, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. Eternal life comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scriptures are pointing us to the salvation that God has offered through His Son, Jesus Christ. This leads us to a third truth concerning God's distinctive message, the Gospel. And that is this. The Gospel produces eternal transformation. The Gospel produces eternal transformation. Again, I'm going to give you three points just to to have it in your mind. We'll come back and work our way through it. First of all, 
the gospel eternally changes the believer's relationship with God. Secondly, the gospel eternally changes the believer's life. Thirdly, the gospel eternally changes the believer's agenda. So first of this, the gospel eternally changes the believer's relationship with God. So let's just take a breath. I think sometimes you need to just take a breath and pause so that we don't have all, everything that we're talking about. Because this is a lot. I know I'm dumping a lot. We're studying God's Word. It's a well. It's deep and wide, right? If we don't, if we're not careful, the words will wash over us and we'll miss the content and then we won't worship. The gospel eternally changes the believer's relationship with God. Of utmost importance is the understanding that we are born in sin. We are born in sin. And that sin has theological and eternal consequences. We are born sinners and we demonstrate our sinfulness in life. So we're sinners by birth and sinners by choice. The Bible tells us that sin separates us from God. Listen to how God spoke to His people Israel in Isaiah 59 too. But your sins have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Take a look at Romans chapter 5, please. You're in Romans 1. Take a look at Romans 5. Starting in verse 6, listen to what God has to say through Paul. But while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, listen carefully, while we were, what does it say? We were enemies. When? When we were born. Why? Because we were born in sin. And what does sin do? Sin separates us. Sin must be dealt with. God is just in His dealings with sin. Sin puts a, a chasm between us and God, and worse yet, it produces the wrath of God as a ready and available pouring forth from God. If, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. All right. We need more information, Paul. Lord, we need more information. Verses 1 and 2 supply that information. Chapter 5. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, how? By faith we have what? Well, if we, if we have peace now through faith, faith resulting in justification, what did we have before? Not peace. <laughs> we had conflict. We had enmity. We were enemies toward God. Hating God. However, through faith in the Son of, the, of God, Jesus Christ, God has justified us. That means He's removed our sin and added Jesus' righteousness. He made us who were enemies at peace. Another term for that is called, you know it, reconciliation. God has reconciled us. Okay, a little further here. We have peace with God. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access. How? By faith into this grace in which we not stood, stand. And we rejoice presently 
in hope of the glory of God. So there's a lot, a lot going on. I know I'm pouring a lot. Born sinners, born separate, born enemies. God has done what the law weakened through the flesh could not do by sending His Son, Jesus, in the flesh. He came and condemned sin in the flesh. He dealt with sin. So that when we recognize our sin, we realize what it does. The wages of sin is death. We realize our sin. We repent of our sin. And we turn to Jesus Christ. And we receive justification. And we're made at peace. Now the readers of this letter had already come to this place in their lives. Head back to Romans chapter 1. The reason we know that is how God addresses them through Paul. He's writing in this first century letter to a a church filled with believers. Listen to how God, through Paul, addresses them in chapter 1 and verse 7 to start with. To all those in Rome... Will you read it with me? Who are loved by God and called to be saints. I know I'm trying to make emphasis here. Two things in verse 7 that God calls them. Loved by God. Called to be saints. In verse 6, he also says this, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Rather than being at odds or enemies or condemned, these believers to whom he's writing were a precious possession of a redeeming God. A precious possession. It is near to unfathomable. For God to call people like us loved. Every day, you know who you are. Every day, you deal with your own foolishness, recklessness, brokenness, sadness, anxiety, despair, selfishness, covetousness. Every day, you deal with yourself. You know just how difficult of a person you are to love. And the God who is holy and righteous and just says to you, if you're one of His, you are loved by me. If that doesn't stir your heart, what I will tell you is either you're not listening or you don't know him. I don't discount the possibility that you're not listening. But if you are listening and that still makes you flatline, that means you just don't know him. Because for God to love me is breathtaking. Called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is a distinctive result of God's distinctive message, the gospel. Move forward briefly to discuss a point that he makes in this passage that we have to understand, or try to anyway. The gospel eternally changes the believer's life. So we talked about the fact that the gospel eternally changes our relationship to God. We've gone from enemies to loved from contrary to God and His ways and His will to those who are called by Him, called to belong to Him as a special treasure, a possession of God. What a change that is. Change our relationship with God. Secondly, it changes our lives. Look at what he says in verse 5. Now, we're not going to cover everything in verse 5 because next week we're going to talk about the distinctive Messiah who is the one who grants grace and apostleship at the beginning of verse 5. That'll be for next week, that portion of it. But we want to see what that grace and apostleship is supposed to do. God granted grace and apostleship to Paul as a commissioned one, a distinctive 
messenger of the gospel. And, and it was to do what? In verse 5. To bring about the obedience of faith. God commissioned, called out, sent forth Paul and granted him grace to bring forth the obedience of faith. Now there are two ways to read this and we're going to read it both ways for our edification. Listen to, to the two ways we can read it. It'll be on the screen to my left and right. The obedience that springs from or flows from faith. So that concept is we obey as a result of having trusted Christ. Obedience that springs from or flows from faith. Secondly, it can be read this way, obedience that is faith. Obedience that is faith. In other words, the call goes out. We're going to talk about this so you don't have to understand it all right this second. The call goes out, and what is that call? Come to me. Come to me. Turn from your sin. And the obedience is to turn from our sin and to call upon the Lord or to come to the Lord. The phrase is sufficiently ambiguous so that either translation is possible. Both concepts are attested in Scripture. So rather than make a choice between them, I think that it would benefit us to recognize the implications of both of these translations. Never forget the general call that has been issued by God then that this is not to be confused with what has been termed the effectual call. Listen to the calls of God that go out to all the earth. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands, what does it say? All people everywhere to repent. Who's that for? Everyone. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is a general call. Come to me. Repent. Come. And at the very conclusion of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 17, it's not the last verse, but it's, it's almost there. The Spirit and the Bride. Who's the Bride? The church. The Spirit and the church say what? Come! And let the one who hears say, come! Let the one who is thirsty, come! Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What's the call? Come! Repent! Come! This is for you. This is for me. This is for my neighbor. This is for my sister. It's for my uncle. It's for my niece. It's for my kids. It's for everyone. The call has been issued. This is a call that comes through God. Remember the words of Jesus. Many are called, but few, few are chosen. The gospel calls, call goes forth to everyone. This is why it can be said and must be understood. God is calling to you today to repent and to come. And the Bible gives clear testimony that many before you have heard that call to repent and to come and have said, no, no, I will not. No, I will not. Romans 10.16 says, For they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? In 2 Thessalonians 1.8, In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not, what does it say? Obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17, the Bible says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who, what does it say? Do not obey the gospel of God. Who is responsible for this? Everyone is. The call has gone forth. Repent. Come. And many have disobeyed that call. Considering these thoughts conveys the translation in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Romans, the obedience that is 
faith, the obedience that is faith. There was a call to repent and believe. We turned and called forth. We obeyed the call. Others disobey the call. The obedience, on the other hand, that flows from faith, results from faith. It's a different translation. That's the, 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 the phrase can be translated either way. Obedience that is faith or obedience that springs from faith. That would convey the idea of our lives being changed due to God's work of redemption in us. God's work through the gospel first changes our eternal standing of righteousness. That's our fitness for heaven. And it also changes our practical condition. This is worthwhile for our consideration, ladies and gentlemen. You see, we come to church, we sing, maybe we give, maybe we don't. I'm not looking. I have no idea who gives and who doesn't. I don't want to know. I will not know. I refuse to know. don't know who gives and who doesn't. It's irrelevant to me to have that personal knowledge. Giving is not irrelevant. Another point altogether. We sing, we give, we pray, we study. You sit, you listen, or you don't. True faith changes not only our position before God. I have the righteousness of Christ added. I will one day stand before him with confidence because my righteous condition has been eternally recorded. But it also changes my condition. That doesn't mean I always obey. It doesn't mean I always do what's right. But it means that when I sin, I know it. And when I sin, I repent. I confess my sin. And I ask God for His grace to enable me to, di- to live differently. God's work changes us practically. Now, we could look at many texts. We don't have time for many texts. I will share one that summarizes it better than beautifully. 1 John chapter 5 will be on the screens to my left and right. Verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. That means we love each other. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Here's a key statement. And His commandments are not burdensome. That doesn't mean they don't ever weigh down on us because of our disobedience. It means they don't, it's not like we're disgusted by them. They're not grievous is another translation. It's not like God says, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself, and we say, well, that's, that's dumb. I want you to love your spouse like Jesus loves the church. Well, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. I want you to serve me. Well, why would I want to do that? What good is that going to do? That's the opposite of feeling that God's commandments are not grievous or burdensome. Do you welcome God's instruction in your life? Do you want Him to tell you how you ought to live? Do you want to live in accordance with God's purposes and plans? I'm not asking you if you do it 24 hours a day and 7 days a week. That'd be none of us. But at the same time, we want to. Want to. I want to serve God. I want to love God. I want to worship God. I want to put off the, 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 the grievous desires of my flesh. I want rather to have my desires changed, my affections changed. In the spreading of the gospel, the messenger, Paul, seeks to see people prepared to stand before their judge. That means they need justification. And the messenger seeks to call people to a life of worship, service, and obedience to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. This is a call for practical sanctification. 
See, the Gospel changes our relationship with God and it changes our lives. This is a fact. No change, no salvation. No change, no repentance and faith. No change. This does, again, I've been clear, I will be clear again. I'm not saying you disobeyed and therefore there's no change, therefore you, didn't, you weren't saved. It's a different subject. It's not what I said. My life, when I sin, do I know it? Does the Spirit of God bear witness with my spirit that I have grieved God? Call me to repentance. When, when He calls me to repentance, do I turn and ask God for grace to do what's right? No change, no faith. Finally, the gospel eternally changes the believer's agenda. Our agenda. We're back in chapter 1 in verse 5. Look what it says again. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Ready? For the sake of His name among the nations. Our natural tendency is to put ourselves in the best possible light. Listen carefully. Because God, through the Gospel, grants us a perfect standing before uh, we know um, before Him, we no longer need to strive to acquire, to earn, or connive our way into His good graces. Because we have a good standing before Him through the Gospel, we don't need to find a way to have a good standing before God and His good graces. We know that our standing before Him is secure and undeserved. Our standing as a result of His work. And this lack of striving within us, this lack of seeking to attain a good standing, produces what the Bible would call rest. Rest doesn't mean doing nothing. Rest means I am not trying to climb my way toward God for salvation And I'm not, as one who has been saved, trying to climb my way toward God for approval in my Christian life. The approval has already been met through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel. It produces rest. A rest in the Christian that still seeks to serve. Still seeks to worship. Still seeks to serve. Still seeks to obey. Instead of seeking ways to make ourselves look better, sometimes we call this putting lipstick on a pig, we seek to help others to see in truth how great God is. It becomes the MO, the modus operandi of our lives. Listen to what the Bible says in two passages in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So... Whether therefore, that's how I have it memorized, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 through 31, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast of themselves in His presence. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts do what? Boast in the Lord. Where is your boast today? Is it in Him? Is it all about the glory that He deserves. He's redeemed a sinner like me. He's redeemed a sinner like you. See, the Gospel changes our life's agenda. Before, I wanted to, to, to prove myself. And now, I have no need to prove myself. Jesus has already supplied the need. So instead of trying to prove myself and wanting people to think I'm a swell guy, it's about pointing to Him and saying, look, look at the One. Here, you'll find life. 
Here you'll find stability. Here you'll find consistency. Here you'll find righteousness every moment of every day forever. Never is there a wavering in him. You look at me, you'll find wavering. I don't want you to. I don't want you to waver. I don't want my wife to know that, I, that, I, that I'm frail. I don't want my kids to know that I'm frail. I don't want you to know that I'm frail. But I'm frail. Don't look at me. Look at him. Our boast is in him. We can have rest. We are weak. He is strong. Our goal is not to be the best Christian we can be. We want, we want God's grace to be on display. Our goal is to point to him. May he be glorified. And so... As we do our good works, we want our Father and our Savior to be glorified in heaven. So we see in verse 5 one more time, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The good news of the gospel tells us that we are not abandoned to try to turn over a new leaf. Rather, God, through the gospel, calls us to repentance and faith. This results in a perfect, eternal standing before Him and guaranteeing our dwelling with Him forever. And God, through His work in the gospel, changes us from the inside out. He will change our affections our actions, and our agenda. This truly is a distinctive message. There is nothing like the gospel known to man. It is the only message that saves eternally and changes us daily. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your mercy your grace, your kindness, and your patience with us. Help us to humble ourselves before you to seek your glory, to demonstrate your righteousness in this world for your glory's sake, and to call people into a relationship with you that will change them forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.